Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. It's not every day that you find yourself talking on the telephone to the person who attempted to assassinate you. And it's not every person who can say they survived not just one but two assassination attempts by Vladimir Putin's death squads. But our guest today is such a person. Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karamorzas survived two poisoning attempts that were, according to the preponderance of evidence, carried out on the Kremlin's orders. And last month, thanks to the awesome work of the investigative journalist at Bellingcat, he and we learned the identities of the Russian security agents who tried to kill him. And we're about to hear Vladimir's story, so don't go away. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Fairfax, Virginia, is the one and only Vladimir Karamurza, the vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome back to the podcast, Vladimir. I'm glad we can make this happen. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's always good to be back in the vertical. It's good to have you in the vertical. So, Vladimir, you and I have known each other for quite a few years, and, and you've been a guest in this podcast quite a few times, but you and I have never really talked at length about the two attempts in your life and what they signify. Um, the first attempted assassination was back in May 2015, uh, when you were on a trip to Kazan, as I understand it, just months after your friend and mentor, Boris Nemtsov, was shot dead in Moscow. And the second was in February of 2017. I followed both of those closely when I was at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in those years. And last month, the investigative journalism outfit Bellingcat in partnership with their Spiegel and the Russian magazine The Insider, published an investigation revealing the names of your wannabe assassins, four FSB officers, two of whom are believed to have been involved with the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny last month. And as you wrote in your column for the Washington Post recently, you actually called one of them on the telephone, which must have been pretty surreal. For the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with your story, I, I'm sure, sure the listeners of this podcast are somewhat familiar with it, I wanted to turn the microphone over to you to recount what happened back in May 2015, back in February 2017, what it was like to learn the names of your would-be assassins and what it was like to talk to them on the telephone, and then we can kind of broaden it out about what this all means. So yeah, you, you, uh, the floor is yours, Vladimir. Well, the first time... This happened was May 26, 2015. I was actually in Moscow. I had just come back from Kazan. Uh, okay. And I was at a work meeting with a couple of colleagues uh, in downtown Moscow. And um, a few minutes into the conversation, I suddenly began feeling really sick. Uh, I felt my heart racing away. I felt that my blood pressure dropped. I began sweating profusely. It became really difficult to breathe. And I must say, this is probably the most terrifying experience of all when you're trying to take in the air and, and you cannot. You feel as if you're suffocating. I began to vomit. I quickly collapsed on the floor. My colleagues, thankfully, I was not alone at the time. My colleagues put me up on a sofa and called an ambulance. 
And for the next few days, I was shuffled between different hospitals uh, around Moscow because nobody could figure out what was happening. All of my organs were just giving up one at a time. Uh, and eventually, I was brought to a doctor named Denise Protenko. He's a doctor who saved my life twice. Uh, and he figured out it wasn't a heart problem or a liver problem or a kidney problem. He said it's 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 one big complex problem. And it was he who gave me the, the diagnosis, toxic action by an unidentified substance. So translating from uh, medical speak into plain human language, poisoning, they do not know with what. Uh, I was in a coma. Uh, I had a multiple organ failure. And uh, doctors told my wife that I had a 5% chance to survive. And this happened in exactly the same way again in Moscow in February of 2017. Thankfully, again, I was not alone. I stayed that night at my parent and, uh, parents-in-law's apartment, my wife's parents, uh, because in Moscow, I live alone. My, my family, my wife and kids are in the US uh, for reasons that I don't think I need to explain to, to anyone. So in Moscow, usually I'm alone in my apartment. And, and had I been alone, I would not be speaking to you right now. But I was with my parents-in-law. When the same symptoms began in the same way, in the middle of the night, I woke up, it became really difficult to breathe. And I had just a few minutes uh, before I was going to collapse, so I had time to wake up my parents-in-law and call my wife, who was in the US, and she called the same doctor, Denise Protenka, who had saved me the first time, and he told her to to tell the ambulance to bring uh, me to him. And as soon as he saw me, he called my wife back and said, it's exactly the same thing, and it was. I was again in a coma, again I was with a multiple organ failure, and again, my wife was told that I had a 5% chance to survive. So, you know, I always say that I have three birthdays now, shout out to my parents, and two, which I owe to this Russian doctor, Denis Protenko, who saved me twice. So uh, the diagnosis, again, was toxic action by an unidentified substance, i.e. poisoning. It was clear to all of us from the very beginning that these were deliberate attempts on my life, that the purpose was to kill, uh, that the FSB, the Russian Security Service, the Federal Security Service, was likely behind it, and that the reason for both of those attempts on my life was my involvement, my work, my long-time advocacy uh, for the Magnitsky Act, for targeted visa and financial sanctions in Western democracies, the US, Canada, United Kingdom, European Union countries, uh, against those senior Putin regime officials and oligarchs and high-ranking human rights abusers in the Kremlin, who have made a habit of stealing from our people in Russia and then stashing away and spending that loot in the West. And those sanctions have as their goal to stop that corrosive practice. And of course, uh, I don't need to explain to anyone, um, they are really not happy about this work. And so this was all clear from the very beginning. But I have to say that it's one thing to know intellectually that someone's tried to kill you. And it's quite another to be actually shown the specific people who did this, the photographs, the names, the ranks. And I don't think there are enough words in any language for me to describe, at least any language I know, for me to describe the range of emotions I felt when Krista Grozev and Roman Dobrohotov, of respectively of the Bell of Bellingcat and of the Insider, the co-authors of the uh, investigation, showed me. So this was in Moscow three weeks ago, uh, February 11th, when they showed me uh, the names, the ranks, the photographs of four officers of the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, uh, whom they have identified as having been involved in organizing both of my poisonings. These FSB officers had followed me all around the country, in different Russian regions, in Tomsk and Kazan and Nizhny Novgorod and Kaliningrad and St. Petersburg, in the months preceding both poisonings in 2015 and 2017, a coincidence that is statistically impossible. Uh, and uh, in every instance, they would arrive to the place that I was going to one day early, 
uh, I suppose, to prepare the ground. Uh, and these FSB officers came from two different directorates. Two of them came from the Directorate for the Protection of Constitutional Order, and the other two came from the FSB Criminalistics Institute. And I have to say, this is really Orwellian in its nature. You remember George Orwell's 1984 yes. had the Ministry of Truth that engaged in propaganda, the Ministry of Peace that waged wars, and so on. So in Russia, in the 21st century, we have the FSB Directorate for the Protection of Constitutional Order that organizes political murders, and we have the FSB Criminalistics Institute that is supposed to detect and counteract the use of prohibited chemical weapons that actually itself uses prohibited chemical weapons to physically eliminate opponents of Vladimir Putin. So these four FSB officers were Roman Mezentsev and Alexander Samofal from the Directorate for Protection of Constitutional Order, and Konstantin Kudryavtsev and Valery Sukharev from the Criminalistics Institute. So these were the actual chemical weapons experts. What shocked me was that they're actually doctors by education. You know, doctors are supposed to take the Hippocratic Oath not to right. harm, and they use their medical knowledge to kill. And one of them, Valery Sukharev, was with me in Kazan in May of 2015, just 48 hours before I ended up in intensive care in a coma with a multiple organ failure. So presumably, as Bellingcat makes the conclusion, this is where the poison was administered. And as we know from the uh, extensive investigation uh, last year into the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, and by the way, Konstantin Kudryavtsev yeah. uh, was also involved in the poisoning of Navalny. He followed me on at least two and, trips. And Sukharev, and, Sukharev, and Sukharev as well, right? Yes, I believe Sukharev too. So two of those, so, so both chemical weapons, weapons experts, especially so the FSB, they were involved in the Navalny poisoning. They were also involved in in my two poisonings, the other two from the Directorate for the Protection of Constitutional Order, Roman Mezentsev was the man we, we phoned to answer your question. So Christo and Roman gave me the phone number. And I don't think, uh, I've been so nervous for a long time, I have to say, is when we dialed that number. And he, he was identified as the most senior FSB officer uh, uncovered so far in all of these previous poisoning investigations, who was personally involved in organizing these attempted murders. He went with me to Kaliningrad in March of, of 2015, according to, to Bellingcat's findings. And so um, we called him up. Uh, this is recorded. It's published on the Insider's, uh, yeah. on the insider's uh, website. Uh, he answered the phone. Uh, I said his name to, to make sure that it's actually him. He confirmed that, yes, it is indeed him. And then, uh, and then I said my name. And then, of course, as he wouldn't be surprised, he... Uh, uh, hung up and switched off his phone. He didn't want to continue that conversation. But, you know, what struck me most, I, I, I suppose, was the mundaneness of evil. You know, I was looking at these photographs that they showed me, uh, these four FSB officers who, who tried to kill me twice. And, you know, these are regular faces, the kind of people I see every day on the streets of Moscow. And yet, you know, their, their employment is that of professional assassins in the service of the state tasked with murdering political opponents of the regime. And, you know, I wonder what these people talk about at family dinner table at night. I mean, what do their kids ask them? How many people have you poisoned today, daddy? I mean, it's, it, it, it really is mind boggling. And, but, you know, I have to say that as shocking as it was and, and as emotionally nerve wracking as this was for me, um, I, I have to convey my deepest gratitude to the insider and Bellingcat and Der Spiegel and my, I'll take my hat off to, to them for, having uncovered all of this, they essentially did the work that the Russian investigative committee should have done, which hasn't even responded to me, by the way, to the two requests well, you, I had you've made. Requested criminal, yeah. You've requested a criminal. Both occasions. So 2015, 
end 2017, my lawyer, Vadim Prokhorov, and I went uh, to the Russian Investigative Committee to request criminal investigations into attempted murder. To this day, we haven't yet received a response. Uh, now, of course, a couple of weeks ago, after the Bellingcat and the insider investigation came out, we went there again for the third time to the Russian Investigative Committee. This time, not only with a general request, but with specific facts, specific dates, specific names identified by the Bellingcat investigation, filing criminal charges for attempted murder against these four officers of the Federal Security Service. Now, by law, uh, the investigative committee has 30 days, one month to respond. So this would take us into mid-March. Of course, we harbor no illusions as to what the response is going to be. So it is absolutely clear that we will have to seek justice through the courts. Again, we know how the courts operate in today's Russia. So we will be taking this all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. That's what I was uh, Because ask. Yeah. we are talking about an attempt to violate, two attempts to violate, the most important right there is that is guaranteed by the European Convention on Human Rights, and that is the right to life. And there was an investigation here in the U.S. of our toxology report surrounding this as well. Am I correct? Uh, you are correct, but we do not know the results of that because they have been classified. So uh, the second time I was poisoned in February of 2017, my wife managed to take my blood samples to the U.S., to Washington, and gave them to the FBI's toxicology lab. Now, they didn't have to do anything, strictly speaking. I'm not an American citizen. The crime was not committed on U.S. soil, but it was... Uh, a pretty high-profile case. There was a lot of attention, and uh, many of my friends in Congress, including the late Senator John McCain, requested that the FBI uh, investigate this matter. So they accepted the blood samples, they tested them, and then they classified the results. And they refused to give them to me, which is actually absurd, because we're talking about the test results of my own blood, right? But they refused to give them to me. They refused to give them to members of Congress who had requested them specifically, including the late Senator McCain, including Senator Cardin, Senator Rubio, Senator Wicker, and some others. Uh, what's interesting, by the way, is they um, denied those requests orally by phone, so as not to leave any paper trail. Uh, the FBI has denied the requests made through the Freedom of Information Act by myself, but also by um, your former colleagues at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, who have yep. made this request. Yep. Uh, and I should say, to be more accurate, they haven't denied the request. They just haven't responded to them. They haven't given out any documents. So there's no official denial either, but no documents have been provided. And so um, a little more than a year ago, in February of 2020, I had no other choice left but to take the United States Department of Justice to court in Washington, D.C., uh, through my American lawyer, Stephen Rademacher, former assistant secretary of state, was one of, one of the top Washington lawyers who has taken up this case completely pro bono, for which I'm deeply grateful as public service because he is as indignant as anyone because nobody can understand why this is happening. I mean, I don't think anybody's surprised by the fact that the Russian investigative committee is refusing to open a criminal investigation. But why would the American FBI? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. It is. And, and, uh, and so for, for more than a year now, this lawsuit has been uh, ongoing. We have received hundreds of pages of documents, uh, thanks to this lawsuit from the FBI, from the Department of Justice. From, this, from these documents, uh, it is absolutely clear that this was intentional poisoning, and there's no news in that, but that's, that's confirmed from the FBI documents. Uh, what's perhaps more significant is that the FBI documents confirm that my case, my poisonings, were discussed in January of 2018, when the three heads of Russian security services, the FSB, the SVR, and the GRU, visited Washington and met with their American counterparts. 
and that is a possible reason for the classification. Of course, that that's that's only something that we can speculate about and guess. Uh, but but it is now confirmed for a fact that my poisonings were discussed at that January 2018 meeting. Very little is known about that meeting or what else was discussed when when those three Russian security chiefs came to the U.S. Are you hopeful now that when there's a new administration, of course, here in Washington, than the one that was dealing with this throughout throughout all of this, um, and it's an administration that's known to be much more hawkish on on Russia? Um, Are you hopeful that the new administration, you might see a change? Well, generally speaking, I have a good feeling about the Russia policies of this new U.S. administration, as opposed to the previous U.S. presidents, all of whom, in one way or another, attempted resets or detente or appeasement of Vladimir Putin. You know, George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Barack Obama had the reset and, you know, tried to block the Magnitsky Act, not to anger Putin. Donald Trump engaged in public pandering to Putin and tried to invite him back into the G8, and everybody everybody knows this. So, in generally speaking, I am hopeful that this administration will make a change in terms of the Russia policy. More specifically, on my case, it's only recently that uh, I believe the Senate held a hearing for the new Attorney General, Mary Garland, Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I know, he's not confirmed yet. He's not, not yet, he but will close. Be confer- right. Once he will be confirmed, he will have the authority to declassify those remaining pages with one stroke of a pen. And by the way, of the numbers that we do know, about 15 pages have been outright classified by the FBI relating to my case. We are guessing that these are the actual test results. And then about 200 more pages have been referred for consultations to other federal agencies. They're not saying which ones, and they're not giving us any dates as to when these consultations will be concluded. I do know that my case was raised uh, at the Senate confirmation hearing uh, for Judge Garland. Uh, So once he is confirmed, he will have the authority to declassify those remaining pages with one stroke of a pen. Well, I suppose we'll have the answer to your question soon. I suspect we will. I have a pretty good feeling about this. Um, you know, if George Bush looked into Putin's eyes and said he saw his soul, uh, Biden said when he looked into Putin's eyes, he told Putin he didn't think he had a soul. Um, but right. according to most reports, and, and Putin said reportedly this, uh, said we understand each other. <laughs> this was in March of 2011. And that phrase that you just quoted, uh, then Vice President Biden said during his meeting with Russian opposition leaders, including the late Boris Nemtsov in Moscow, and that in itself was a very powerful, very important, very Reagan-esque gesture that fewer leaders are willing to do today. When immediately after his meeting with Putin, Biden went to see the leaders of the Russian opposition, including Boris Nemtsov, and a very clear message that he does not consider Russia to be limited to the Putin regime and to that that small clique of kleptocrats in the Kremlin. And that's a very important signal. And and I'm hoping that now that he's president, uh, he's going to continue in the same vein. Yeah, no, and I expect him to. Before I broaden this out a little bit, uh, Vladimir, I wanted to add, if you imagine that uh, Mazensev didn't hang up on you, what did you what did you plan to say to him? I, you, I'm sure you had you had already prepared what you were going to say to him. What were you going to say to him? Well, no, to be honest, actually, I didn't have anything prepared. Uh, I, I I don't think it's 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 an experience comparable to anything else when you hear the voice uh, of somebody who has tried to kill you twice. Yep. I mean. I was I was really nervous. I, I have no shame in admitting that. And no, I actually didn't have anything prepared. I suppose I was just uh, planning to ask this man why he was trying to kill me. Uh, and I just I just wanted to hear his voice. I did the second. I didn't do the first because he hung up and he switched off his phone. Um, but it's just, uh, again, it's completely mind-boggling to even be talking about this. And, you know, we're so used to everything that the Putin regime represents, that I think sometimes it's it's actually worth just taking a pause uh, 
for a second, taking a step back and just saying that in the 21st century, a European country is operating a professional squad of assassins in the employment of the state who are tasked with physically eliminating opponents of the government. I think it's just worth restating that fact. No, and I want it. I mean, this is, um, you know, the working title of this episode is Putin's death squads. And you that's know, what they we, are. We in the U.S. used to refer to death squads, you know, in Latin American dictatorships in the in the 80s. I remember this this um, being a kind of a, a catchphrase in the media. But like Putin has death squads. I mean, this is there, there, there can be no doubt about that. And they're operating not just inside the Russian Federation. They're operating in Western Europe, um, as we know from the Litvinenko uh, case, where he's poisoned with polonium, for, to, to the, the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal in Salisbury with, you know, with, with Novichok, um, and now the Navalny attempted poisoning, and in yours, which was you know prior to a lot of these. Um, and and well, by the way, Brian, I think it's really important to, to say here that these death squads, these Putin's death squads, as, as you rightly call them, they come in different forms and they come in different shapes. Now, the FSB specializes in poisonings. This is a method that the Soviet security services yes. had used and had preferred for decades. Uh, but there are other types of death squads. You know, this past Saturday, February 27th, yep. we had uh, a memorial event in Moscow, 200 yards from the Kremlin Wall, where six years ago, February 27th, 2015, Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov was gunned down by five bullets in the back as he walked home across a bridge, literally in the shadow of the Kremlin. This was the most high-profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. And we know, according to an official Russian court verdict, that the man who pulled the trigger was a serving officer in the Russian Interior Ministry, came from Chechnya, and who was a subordinate of Kremlin-appointed and Kremlin-backed Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov. And of who course, got a medal, say, who got a medal after that. He got a medal after that, and, and one of his close subordinates, uh, a man by the name of Suleiman Gerimeyev, got a medal on the fifth anniversary on Boris Nemtsov's assassination, February 27, 2020. And uh, needless to say, uh, after uh, you know convicting and jailing the, the lowest level of the immediate perpetrators in the, in the Nemtsov assassination, the Russian authorities have cut all the links going up to the organizers and masterminds. And to this day, the organizers and masterminds of the assassination of Boris Nemtsov continue to enjoy full protection from the highest levels of the Russian state. However, uh, a year ago, in February of 2020, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the world's largest regional security organization that includes 57 member states, including Russia and the US, has issued its own very detailed, very comprehensive oversight report into the Nemtsov murder, where they detail witness testimony that was obviously ignored by Russian investigators, pointing to when, where, and how Vladimir Putin gave the order to Ramzan Kadyrov to carry out this assassination. And we know that it was carried out by Ramzan Kadyrov's men. And one yes. of them, Ruslan Gerimeyev, another senior officer in the Russian Interior Ministry, another close subordinate of Ramzan Kadyrov, was actually sanctioned two years ago under the Magnitsky Act in the United States for his role uh, in carrying out the assassination of, of Boris Nemtsov. And the U.S. government, when they made the designation, specifically emphasized which is really rare when they do that, that Gerimeyev was acting as an agent of or on behalf of Ramzan Kadyrov. And again, we know from the OSCE report exactly when and exactly where Vladimir Putin gave the order to Kadyrov. So everything is clear. Everything is evident for the whole world to see. And I just thought it's important to, to say that these death squads, they come not only in, in the shape of FSB poisoners, 
but also in the shape of Kadyrov's gunmen. Yeah, no, and in, in the shape of assassins using assault weapons. I wanted to kind of talk about this. I, I, I want to talk about Nemtsov in detail in the second half because I do want to mark his memory six years after he was assassinated. But one of the things that kind of came out of the Nemtsov assassination for me in terms of how much that had changed the game was that there used to be rules of engagement on assassinations. And somebody of Nemtsov's stature a former first deputy prime minister of Russia, who was at one time thought to be a potential president of Russia. When I was living in Russia in the 90s, Nemtsov was considered a, a possible, if not likely, candidate to succeed Boris Yeltsin. He was um, the most popular politician in Russia in the late 1990s, was, according was by, to opinion yeah, polls. Yeah, by he far. Was the most popular, yeah, he was by far the most popular politician in Russia. He was a very successful governor of Nizhny Novgorod. He was the first deputy prime minister. Um, and even when he went into the opposition, he was an opposition leader that was kind of elevated above others. He had an international profile that few others had. There used to be at least a perception that there was an unwritten rule that people of that stature could not be killed. They could be arrested. They could be harassed. They could be beat up, but they couldn't be. They could be beaten up, but they couldn't be killed. And when when the line was crossed with Nemtsov, the thought in my mind was like, is this an anomaly or is this a new rule of engagement? I just got my answer in, in August because Navalny has a similar high profile. You would think he would have been somebody that was off limits for killing. Um, but they certainly attempted to kill him. How do you see this? Do you see kind of rules of engagement on this of like, you know, who, whom can be killed and who can't? Or is it just random and arbitrary? There are no rules anymore, Brian. The Putin regime has no rules. And the final red line was crossed that night of February 27th, 2015 yes. on that bridge in front of the Kremlin. Because if he can assassinate former deputy prime minister, the leading political opponent of the regime, the most high profile uh, leader of the Russian opposition and get away with it, because nobody, as we just discussed, beyond the level of the immediate perpetrators have faced any kind of responsibility, then you can do anything. So, you know, every time I'm asked by Western journalists to sort of comment on a latest case of repression or yet another political arrest or, you know, any, anything of this kind, I always say that I think it's pretty meaningless to speak about human rights abuses or repression uh, with a regime uh, that can murder its most prominent opponent and then nothing will happen to the people who have organized it. That was the final red line that was crossed on February 27, 2015. So there are no rules anymore. Well, before we move into the second part of our discussion, where I do want to talk about Boris Ifimovich Nemtsov, um, you know, who is, he was my friend. You were a lot closer friends with him. He was your mentor and, and you worked for him. I did want to ask you something kind of along the personal lines. Um, I mean, you just got back from Moscow. I know that. I, I, I know you, you flew into Washington to, to spend your daughter's birthday uh, together with her. And you're planning to fly right back to Moscow after that. And quite frankly, Vladimir, you're, you're not just somebody I have on my podcast. You're my friend. And every time you go to Moscow, Moscow, I get nervous, <laughs> quite frankly. What makes you keep going back to Moscow, given the obvious danger that exists? I'm sure you've answered this question before, but I wanted to hear it for our listeners. Well, you know, when Alexei Navalny woke up from his coma uh, in September at, at Berlin's Charité Clinic, and the first thing he said was that he will go back home to Russia as soon as he's able to, I was literally inundated with calls from journalists asking me to comment on this sensation, as they put it, to which I answered that not only don't I see any kind of sensation, I don't actually see anything newsworthy here. Of course, he's going to go back. He's a Russian politician. A Russian politician has to be 
in Russia. The biggest gift those of us who oppose the Putin regime could give to the Kremlin is if we all just gave up and ran. There's nothing better they want from us. In fact, back in the 70s, still in the Soviet times, the authorities came to the conclusion, this was when Yuri Andropov was chairman of the KGB, they came to the conclusion that the most effective way of silencing and neutralizing political opponents was not to arrest them, was not to imprison them, was not to put them in psychiatric hospitals. All of this was done as well, of course. But the most effective way to neutralize opponents was to exile them abroad. Because once a politician, a dissident, an opponent is outside of their own country, they lose not only the everyday connections that are necessary to feel the ground, to feel the situation, but much more importantly than that, they lose the moral authority and they lose the moral right to continue their work if they stay somewhere in a nice and safe place, you know? And it's exactly the same today. And this is why the Russian authorities signaled multiple times while Alexei Navalny was still uh, in Germany uh, recovering from poisoning that there are going to be new criminal cases, that he's going to be arrested on his return because they wanted him to stay out. They want all of us to stay out. You know, this is manifested even in tiny, small things. Every time I fly back into Moscow, I'm a Russian citizen coming to my own country. I have always some trouble on passport control. I stand there for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. I don't mean in line. I mean in front of the officer. And they call someone on the phone. They go and report to somebody. They look, you know, they have their, their, their eyes, you know, widen up when they see the computer screen. I'll give a lot to see what they have on me. They obviously I cannot because the screen is turned the other way. And every time this happens, of course, eventually they stamp my passport and let me through. How can they not? Every time I fly out, it's 10 seconds. Stamp, get out of here. Well, you know what? We are not going to. A Russian politician has to be in Russia. It cannot be any other way. And so I actually continue to be amazed that I do get this question all the time because, you know, to me, it's really simple. I suppose if, if somebody's goal in life is to have a nice, quiet life and engage in a, you know, a non-political profession, then it doesn't matter where they are. If you're a politician, you cannot be outside of the country. It does not work. Mm -hmm. So um, well, we're not going to give them gifts of the, this, this kind of magnitude that they want from us. It's just not going to happen. They want all of us to go away and we are not going to. I mean, I would add that though you are very effective here in Washington in educating, let's just say, uh, people in the U.S. government, I, people I, on the I Hill. Continue. And I continue my work in this direction, not only in Washington, but also in Strasbourg and Brussels and London and Berlin, in other, in other capitals of Western democracies. And, you know, in, in normal non-COVID times, I'm actually, when I'm asked uh, the question of where do I spend most of my time, I say on a plane, because that's actually right. the truth of it. I, you know, maybe in three or four countries, like, different week. And, and that's, and I hope to resume that. Uh, but my home is still in Moscow. I'm a Russian politician yeah. and I have to be in Russia and it cannot be any other, any other way. No, if you remember, you and I used to have a running joke that we were both kind of living you part-time, me full-time in Washington, but we would only see each other like at airports <laughs> in European right. cities. Um, and Brian, but, um, let, me, let me wish you that soon, hopefully, we'll be able to get back to that. I've, I've already got oh, my first vaccine, waiting for the second one, so hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel with this. I am trying to get my first. I'm, I'm in the next list of eligible people. I'm just waiting for my zip code to pop up. Well, that's a great way to segue. In a few moments, we shall continue our discussion and take a closer look at the grim anniversary we just passed. It's been six years since Boris Nemtsov was gunned down in Moscow on February 27th, 2015, a day I'll never forget. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the 
UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Fairfax, Virginia is the one and only Vladimir Kadamorza, the vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, chairman of the Paris Nimsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do show, please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and all other Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can, of course, and should follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. So it is hard to believe that we have been living in a world without Boris Nemtsov for six years now. And I'm sure you would agree with me, Vladimir, that it would be great to hear his voice and to talk to him about the issues of the day, but sadly we can't. Now, you served as his advisor. You run a foundation established in his honor. You've organized a campaign, a absolutely brilliant campaign, I've said to you privately, but I must say publicly, to name streets in Western capitals near Russian embassies after Boris Nemtsov. Um, and I'm proud to say that my the town I live in has such a street uh, near the Russian embassy here in Washington. Uh, you no doubt, as you mentioned, marked his memory in Moscow last week. And what I just want to do is open up a discussion, but let's start with your thoughts on Nemtsov's memory, his legacy, and what it means six years after his death. Well, you know, Brian, I do a lot of public speaking as part of my work, but every time I'm asked a question about Boris, it's as if I have some sort of a mental block. It's really difficult for me to speak about this. That's It's the most difficult thing for me to speak about this because this is deeply personal. You know, Boris Nemtsov was not just a a colleague or a mentor. He was a very close friend. In fact, he, he was godfather to one of my kids and it doesn't get more personal than this. And uh, to me, that horrific day, February 27th, 2015, has forever divided my life into the before and the after. And we've just passed that anniversary and it's the most difficult time of the year for me. You know, I have this sort of, uh, sort of this mental countdown. I remember this day almost by the minute. And um, all I can say is that I've never met a better human being in my life. Uh, you know, the, the biggest difference between Boris Nemtsov and the people who currently occupy the Kremlin is not even in any political views or political differences. It's it's in the quality of the human material. Boris Nemtsov was the exact opposite of Putin. He was open. He was kind. He loved people. He loved life. He loved his country. And, you know, it's it's one of the biggest losses in the history of Russia that he did not become president as he should have. I always say that Boris Nemtsov is the best president our country never had. It's always going to be the biggest honor of my life to have worked alongside him for more than 15 years from the late 90s and until until that wretched night in February of 2015. He was someone who embodied two very different periods in Russian history. First, a brief era of freedom and, and democracy and, and hopes and aspirations for it different European Russia back in the 90s when he was, as you mentioned, a very successful governor, a member of parliament, a deputy prime minister, a lot of important accomplishments uh, behind him in those years. And then a new era when Putin came to power two decades ago and began to dismantle and destroy the fledgling democratic institutions in Russia. So many people decided to play by those new rules Yes, and yeah. found themselves nice, plush positions in the new regime or in big business, or decided to leave the country uh, for the safety of exile. 
Boris Nemtsov couldn't do that. For him, silence equaled complicity. And he couldn't just stand by and watch what Putin was doing to our country and do nothing. And so he stayed and he decided to continue the fight. And he emerged, as you know, as one of the most powerful, prominent and effective voices in opposition to the corruption and kleptocracy of the Putin regime. You know, he organized mass demonstrations, tens of thousands of people on the streets of Moscow uh, to protest the the uh, policies of Putin and the Kremlin, including the war on Ukraine. This was his last ever march in September of yeah. 2014. He managed to successfully win elections, which should be impossible for the opposition in an authoritarian system. But yes. he did that just 18 months before he was killed in the city of Yaroslavl. He, of course, was somebody who had years of successful government experience behind him, something very few of us have just because of the length of, of time that Putin has been in the Kremlin. Boris Nemtsov was a potential ready-made president, and that in itself yes. made him very dangerous. One of his biggest sort of quote-unquote crimes uh, in the eyes of the Putin uh, regime was his key role in the passage of those targeted Western sanctions, the Magnitsky laws, yeah. directed against high-ranking human rights abusers and corrupt officials in Vladimir Putin's close circle. Senator John McCain, one of the co-authors of the U.S. Magnitsky Act, once said publicly that there would not have been a Magnitsky Act in the United States without Boris Nemtsov. That is a very powerful statement. And, you know, he was, he was too principled to be bought. He was too bold to be frightened. Yes. And he was certainly too dangerous for them to be tolerated. And so he was silenced the only way he could be, by those five bullets in the back uh, on the bridge in front of the Kremlin. We had that anniversary, uh, the memorial event last weekend in Moscow. Thousands of people came to pay their respects to the bridge, to lay flowers, to light candles. Uh, despite all the restrictions, you know, the COVID-related bans on and public rallies and demonstrations, thousands of people came as they do every year. And this took place all over the country, not just Moscow, but, you know, St. Petersburg and Nizhny Novgorod and Yekaterinburg and, and, and everywhere. And this also happened um, all over the world, including in four world capitals, where Russian embassies now stand on streets that are named after Boris Nemtsov. These four capitals are Washington, D.C., Vilnius, Lithuania, Kiev, Ukraine, and Prague, Czech Republic. And um, I'm proud to have been involved in this work uh, in cooperation with parliamentary leaders, municipal officials, uh, politicians in those Western democracies with whom we have worked to enact those measures of commemoration. Uh, because, of course, back home in Russia, we are not allowed to do any kind of official commemoration. Time after time, the Russian authorities have rejected requests even to put a small memorial plaque on that bridge. Time after time, they have destroyed this makeshift memorial, including twice last week, this makeshift memorial on the bridge. You know, the municipal services and the police come in and they take away the flowers and they steal the candles and they arrest the volunteers. You know, they refuse to classify the assassination of Boris Nemtsov as a political murder. They refused the moment of silence in the Duma, where Boris Nemtsov had himself been a member and a deputy speaker. In every single way, they're showing us that they're not going to allow commemorations yeah. for a Russian statesman in Russia while this regime remains in power. And so we decided to go uh, to Western democracies and to enact those commemorations in free countries where we can for now. And I'm proud that four world capitals today have Russian embassies standing on streets and squares named after Boris Nemtsov. To me, there is no more pro-Russian gesture than to name a street in front of the Russian embassy after a Russian statesman. And I know that whatever the people in the Kremlin are, are saying and thinking about this today, I know that when we will have Boris Nemtsov streets in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Nizhny Novgorod, and all over the country. And when Russia will be proud that our embassies in Washington, in Vilnius, in Kiev, in Prague, and hopefully many other world capitals to come are standing on streets and on squares that are named after Boris Nemtsov.
Um, of the four cities you named, I'm, I'm very proud to say I've lived in three of those cities and live in one of them now. Uh, the city I lived in before Washington was Prague. In the 90s, I lived in Kiev. I've sadly never lived in Vilnius, but it's a city I adore. Where's next? I know you're not uh, going to stop at these four cities. What do you got in the, in the works right now? No, we will, we will continue doing this uh, until the day when we can do this in Russia, because these measures send really powerful signals of commemoration and solidarity. Not only commemoration, but solidarity. That's important. And I have to say, by the way, we didn't invent this. You know, there were Mandela squares during the apartheid era near South African consulates and embassies across the world. There was Sakharov Plaza, there still is to this day, in Washington, D.C., in front of the then Soviet embassy. Now it's the Russian ambassador's residence. There were Sharansky steps in front of the U.N. General Assembly building in in, in New York City. And so this is an old and venerable tradition. We're only continuing this. Uh, and so, yes, we do have plans for several other cities around the world. Uh, they include Warsaw, they include London, they include uh, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, and Canada. Once these pandemic-related restrictions are lifted, I look forward to resuming uh, the travels and to going to all of these places to meet with these municipal and, and parliamentary leaders uh, and to continue this work. And we are going to continue this work until the day when we are able to do this at home in Russia. All right. Well, that is that is a, a good way to wrap up today. Um, and when you continue this work, I certainly want to have you back on to talk about it because I've I've always been fascinated and impressed with this this campaign. Um, I always find it not not surprising, but um, but at the same time odd when Russian officials act like you're doing some anti-Russian thing. And like as you said, what can be more pro-Russian? the naming a street or square in front of a Russian embassy after a great Russian statesman. Um, they obviously don't see it that way, but they're wrong. And so I, I look forward to seeing this campaign uh, continue. And again, I'm, I'm deeply proud that the city I live in right now, Washington, D.C., has a Boris Nemtsov street. The city I left before I came here, Prague, Czech Republic has one, Kiev has one. I think Warsaw will be uh, pretty open to such a suggestion. I'd like to see this in London and I'd like to see it everywhere. Um, So yeah, good luck with that. And I want to have you back on to talk about that once this campaign uh, revives. So on that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from Fairfax, Virginia, has been the one and only Vladimir Kadamorza, the Vice President of the Free Russian Foundation, Chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation, and a columnist for the Washington Post. Vladimir, thanks for an enlightening discussion, and thanks for coming on. I know you had a very busy day, and thanks for making the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Brian. Always good to be back in the vertical. Hope to be uh, back again here soon. Always good to have you in the vertical. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production and promotion activities. Cecilia makes us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave a rating and review. And you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can, of course, and should follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.